Okay, hello everyone and welcome to the Actus Podcast, Talking CDI, the nation's only program dedicated to the clinical documentation integrity profession. The Actus Podcast is a bi-weekly program dedicated to bringing you closer to the difference makers in CDI and sharing the latest news and information relevant to the CDI profession and Actus. Today, Wednesday, March 3rd, marks our 174th program. Today's featured Actus solution, as you can see on your screen, is the live virtual CDI bootcamp. The live virtual CDI bootcamp is Actus's premier training for CDI specialists, trusted by hundreds of CDI specialists as the go-to source for CDI education. This course defines the roles and, res and uh, responsibilities of CDI professionals, covers best practices for medical record review and compliant physician querying. It's taught in a convenient virtual setting, which is what we like about it. So you're, you're on your computer, you're learning remote, but the teachers are live um, with you through the class, including the one I'm going to introduce to you in just a moment. Our instructor today, Don Valdez, is going to be handling uh, today's podcast with myself. So my name is Brian Murphy, Director of Actus, the Association of Clinical Documentation Integrity Specialists. I'm your host for today's program from the mailbag, listener Q&A. So as you guys all know from listening to the show, I usually end every show with a solicitation slash plea for show ideas and questions. And so we have three questions we're gonna to try to get to today. They're, they're pretty detailed and lengthy, uh, but these were actually sent to me verbatim from Actus podcast listeners. So we're gonna be hitting those today and our guest answering them is a familiar face from our show, uh, Don Valdez. You guys probably know Don, but maybe for our first time listeners, she is a CDI education specialist here for us at Actus and HC Pro, where she serves as a full-time instructor for our CDI boot camps, including that virtual boot camp I just mentioned a moment ago. By way of background, Don has more than 20 years experience in the healthcare industry, including ICU nursing, legal nurse consulting, where she initiated a nurse audit program, delivered many lectures over the years. Uh, prior to joining us here at Actus, she was a clinical educator and manager of CDI for a large hospital system. And I'm thrilled to have her on the show as our, uh, not only our co-host, but our guest. So welcome to the show, Dawn. Thank you, Brian. Glad to be here. All right. Before we get started, I'm just going to mention that, you know, this is the we would, Don and I were just chit-chatting before the show that this is the COVID era. We're all working from home, probably most of us, not all of us, but a lot of us are working from home and I'm, I'm, not, I'm among them and I'm having a little work done in my basement. So there could be some banging and crashing in the background. I've, I've moved to, I believe, a relatively secure location. I, so I apologize in advance for any noise issues you may hear in the background. All right, let's start with a poll question related to today's topic. Um, I'm going to go ahead and launch that. Poll question today was a little challenging because we're covering a couple different disparate topics, but um, we're asking you, and actually this one is a check all, so it's you can check more than one option. But today we're asking you, what is your organization's biggest issue with the documentation coding of covid 19 patients. Is it getting that positive lab test documented? Is it uh, post-COVID syndrome, which there's many different effects or uh, uh, definitions there, but patients readmitted with maybe lingering effects? 
You're having difficulty getting queries answered from, from busy and overwhelmed providers. Maybe you don't have any real issues. You're one of the lucky ones or other. And I do welcome your responses. I'd love to hear those. You can drop those in the chat and I, I do monitor those during the program. So send in your other responses as well. Once again, what's your organization's biggest issue with documentation and coding of COVID patients? Is it getting that lab test documented? Is it post-COVID syndrome, getting queries answered, no real issues or other? All right, we've got 65% of our audience, two thirds that have voted. So I'm gonna go ahead, close this out and we will come back to the results in just a few minutes. All right, Don, thank you for uh, being on the show today to answer some questions sent in by our members. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Uh, yeah, we had a couple related as you would expect to COVID. Um, I combined two of these into one, but hopefully maybe these listeners will recognize themselves in this question. Okay. Um, so the first question reads, um, now that we have had the most recent spike of COVID-19 cases across the country, as we have started to move into the post-infection phase, the number of post-COVID infection cases are coming back in for other issues. We're looking to find information and understanding the coding of these post-infection issues. And this is where I combined it. And someone wrote, for example, these may include post-COVID syndrome, um, pneumonia or other conditions attributed to COVID after they've been treated for COVID and are negative. The person says they're doing some research on this, noted that Canada has some direction on the coding of these, but hasn't seen much in the US. So why don't I turn this over to you, Don? Okay, great. Yeah, well, I think there's a lot of people who are going through the same scenario in their facility. So the very first thing we want to talk about is what resources do we have available for these types of cases? Because when the patient is COVID negative and they're coming in for a residual effect, um, there's a certain process that we want to go through. So the resources first that are going to give us some answers potentially are going to be the updated version of the official coding guidelines. So the January 1 update. They've got a whole section in COVID. It does talk about several things in there related to COVID and that's the first thing. The second thing is look at your code books or look at the look at the you know the indexes within your encoder if that's available to you. Look up the codes and look for the coding conventions of code additional or code first notes. Those are going to give you sequencing directions in certain scenarios. The third thing that you can go to which you know I think we all are well aware of are, is our coding clinics. We do have have a coding clinic from the third quarter of 2020 that houses multiple scenarios in the coding clinic that gives a lot of direction on how to code certain scenarios and a, a lot of them are dealing with the readmissions for you know a COVID related type of situation where the, they're no longer they're no longer COVID positive, so they're not doing anything for the actual COVID. So that's gonna be another really good resource. And then the last one that you can go to is codingclinicadvisor.com. Uh, they have a, the latest update, I believe was on Monday. And if you go in there, you're gonna find a lot of Q&A stuff that you know, will probably help you with whatever scenarios that you're dealing with. And that'll at least give you some direction. Now, 
aside from those resources, there's a train of thought that if you get yourself in the habit of going through the same approach every time with these um, types of cases and ask yourself the same questions, you might be able to step your way through this. So you want to ask yourself, what's the status of the COVID? Is it active or has it resolved? Is it being treated or not? Okay, the second question is about the manifestations. Does the documentation point to a COVID-related manifestation? If that's the case, then it's likely going to be your principal diagnoses, rather the COVID. If the COVID is not active and not being treated, it is not gonna be your principal because we only code confirmed cases of COVID and that's not based on the test result. So you got to get the COVID picture clear, then you got to get the manifestation picture clear because that's likely a sequela of a COVID infection that is no longer positive. So the manifestations then would likely become your principle depending on how they're wording it. And then you would also put, it's a B948 sequela code for infectious and parasitic organisms. So that would tell you that this, we don't have a specific sequela code for COVID yet, but this is the category that I have seen recommended. As far as the post-COVID syndrome, you know, syndromes are tricky. There is no ICD-10 code for that. So just think of the sepsis syndrome when we, you know, we might still be seeing that documented, uh, hopefully not, but we had a lot of problems with that with sepsis and it's gonna be the same here. So there's a physician education portion to that where we wanna educate them that when you write that, there's no specific code for that. So what you've gotta do with that scenario is you're gonna to look to see how it's documented. If the provider only documents that there's um, a diagnosis or a manifestation of a post-19 COVID-19 syndrome, then you're going to primarily code the symptoms and a personal history code for COVID, which is Z8616. If they actually link the symptoms as a result of the COVID, then you're going to assign those manifestation codes, whatever they are, be it symptoms or definitive diagnoses, and then the sequela code of the B948. So you got to break it out with again going back to those questions about is COVID active is it not and then how do we code the COVID piece if it's active COVID is likely going to go first unless you've got a competing diagnosis for your principles such as sepsis because we have definitive guidelines on that and that is outlined in your official coding guidelines under the COVID section I believe it's on page 59, but don't quote me on that. So you got to get that straight first and then look at the manifestations and see how that's documented related to COVID. You probably have a sequela going on and then the manifestation is likely going to be uh, principal based on how they say it. And lastly, if there's any question at all, you're gonna query the provider for the status and the relationship. So the status of the COVID, active or resolved, and the, stat and the status of the manifestations as far as are they a consequence, a residual effect, are they due to a pre-COVID experience? And then that's gonna tell you whether you have the sequela code and, and your principal. So I hope that direction helps you sort out. And it's, it's hard when you're in it, I know. There's a lot of information being documented that's probably non-essential. So it kinda, you gotta mine through the data and pull out the nuggets. Right. Geez, as you were speaking, Don, we got some amazing comments coming through. You there, Brian? Brian? Can you hear me, Don? 
The other thing that I can tell you about with the, a lot of people don't know this, let me just say this real quick, the history of code, whenever we're dealing with a history of, so a physician will say history of COVID, that means it's no longer being treated, it's no longer being medically managed, and it, they could be monitored, like, you know, history of uh, a, some type of cancer, and it's in remission. They're not treating it. They're not medically managing it. But they may monitor that to make sure it doesn't come back. But that's a history of code, and we don't code the actual diagnosis for that. We code a history of code if there's one available to fit your scenario. And then the other thing is the sequela is actually a deduced after the acute phase of the illness or injury is terminated. So you wanna watch your manifestations and see which category they're going to fall in with, with either of these scenarios. Dawn, can you hear me? And that's it. Dawn, can you hear me? So Brian, did we lose you? Oh gosh. All right, well, I'm gonna continue until he pops in again. He may be having some technical difficulties. So question number two was the, the person who sent this in said, I was just wondering, would it be possible to do an Actus podcast on deep tissue injuries and coding on them? COVID patients are staying so long and they've had a lot of discussion about DTIs and the proper way to code them. And what I can say, again, similar to the COVID situation, but not as intense and we don't see it as often, is there's been some confusion about this as well. The organization, uh, the National Pressure Ulcer Advisory Panel, that's NPUAP, they've updated the terms for pressure ulcer and now they're calling them pressure injuries. And what they've done is they've separ they separated out the DTIs. Uh, a lot of people would group those a code for them all to themselves. So DTIs, a deep tissue injury, is actually gonna be coded to the L89 code group and that it's going to and the the last character is going to be a six and your fourth and fifth characters are going to be dependent on if it's unspecified and where it is in the body so l89 code set then you're going to have two characters that you got to fill in based on the documentation and the last character should be six now when we talk about dti's these are deep tissue injuries, so they're deep underneath. If there's eschar, if there's granulation tissue, subcutaneous tissue, muscle, <clears throat> excuse me, fascia, any of those underlying structures, if they're exposed, it, it will probably fit into that unstageable category according to the NPUAP and how they're defining that. And you can look them up online. They've got all their staging criteria of all the different stages in including DTI, they've got really good information out there to kind of get you more familiar with it. So again, any type of necrotic tissue, because that's that dead tissue, right? That's what we see on the unstageables, that black eschar and sloth that's over it. But then if it goes down to the sub-Q and if you see granulation tissue or any of the tissues underneath, then that's probably going to put you in that bucket, so you're probably going to have to send a query and just clarify that. And unstageables typically are going to go to stage three and four, right? It's unstageable with that eschar over it, but once they debride, then we can see the actual uh, tissue underneath it, and that likely falls under the three, four staging, which there's coding and put the DTIs in a separate category from the unstageables. Okay, 
there's that's a good question and it does get confusing when you're reading it and the coding clinic does a really good job about going into more detail as far as you know the the two distinctions but they're using pressure injury for all the pressure ulcers so we're used to saying ulcer and that injury code makes it a little confusing with that DTI so just keep those straight now the third question, Brian, do you have audio yet? Hello, Dawn, can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you now, I'm sorry. Oh gosh, okay, I, I switched to my phone, so we're, we're back in action. All right, <laughs> so I'm on question three. Gotcha, okay. So. All right, I can take, I want me to read that one, Dawn, now sure. that I'm back, or? Sure, go ahead. Uh, Actually, why don't I have you take it? I'm just working on something behind the scenes here. I'll have you read okay. question three, and then I'll be back for the in the news. Sure. <laughs> so, so the the student put put a question in about post op respiratory failure. You know, and that's again a really good question because who doesn't have questions about post op respiratory failure, right? PSI eleven yep. is what comes to our mind. So what he said was the scenario is that a cardiothoracic surgeon does the procedure and then admits the patient to the ICU, and then the intensivist or the critical care medicine doc is monitoring the patient. And we see this scenario quite often. So in order to have a medical necessity of the intensivist involved in the case, the diagnosis is expected post-op respiratory failure, and that's what's, get, that's what's documented by the intensivist. I'm looking for any literature related to this matter. Anything would be, be great. And again, big question. Lots of um, detail that we could talk about this for a while. But first off, you know, again, we've all struggled with this diagnosis. So the good news is you're not alone in that. So when you look at what's happening and medical necessity, I'm not so sure that's the appropriate term, but I understand where you're coming from because you're probably getting some feedback based on the, the intensivist or sometimes it's a pulmonologist, critical care attending. Their profies have to have certain things in there to support vent management. So if a patient just comes out of cardiothoracic surgery and remains on the vent, which they likely do, right? Excuse me, that's a medically necessary condition. So I don't know if medical necessity is the right word, but they're probably, again, looking at those profies. First thing you wanna do, now they're saying expected. So an expected would be outside of the category of the PSI 11 because they knew this patient was going to go into post-op respiratory failure. So the first thing is we want to validate that respiratory failure. Do they really have acute respiratory failure? You know, what are the signs and symptoms? They're still going to be vented, so you shouldn't be seeing the struggle, but the patient is so critical that it's not probably the right time to start weaning them off the vent, or if they did really well and the surgery wasn't that extensive, depending on what they did, maybe they tried weaning and the patient failed. So you want to look for those types of clues in the documentation, and then you want to go through your validation points of acute respiratory failure. So hypoxemic is likely what they're going to be in, and then you want to look at that PAO2 level if ABGs are being drawn. If you uh, work with PF ratios, it'll be 300, under 300 for 
supporting acute respiratory failure. And then if you ever do, in a different scenario, have a hypercapnic respiratory failure, that CO2 needs to be greater than 50. Now, once you've validated that, then you should be good to go. As far as what the intensivist needs to document, if it's truly respiratory failure, then they should be good to go, especially if it's expected from whatever surgery they're having. That's the language you want to look for in the record because that's gonna put them outside of that complication factor. Now, if the patient does not have respiratory failure, now we have more work to do because we need to try to uh, clarify that a little bit further with a clinical validation query, meaning you're going to put all the normal values, you're going to put all the normal statements, perhaps they're being intubated for airway protection, perhaps they're on a really low setting, you want to look at your vent settings, are they on assist control where they're fully on the vent, the vent is managing everything, and they're at 80% FiO2, patients, you know, really needing that vent, right? But, or are they on, you know, 20%, 30%, and they're doing spontaneous breathing on their own, and it's just a convenience factor, so they don't have to re-intubate the patient going back to maybe a stage procedure or something to that effect. So that's where you have to try to get that respiratory out because it doesn't validate it. So the intensivist is, you, you've got to validate their diagnosis as well. Right, so they can't say acute respiratory failure if they're intubated for airway protection or some other reason. Maybe they have an increased uh, intracranial pressure. We were, Lori and I and Charm, we were all talking about this yesterday. You know, another thing is gonna be um, if they have a, a CVA, I've seen them intubate, you know, for risk of dysphagia, aspiration pneumonia, all of that stuff because they were drowsy, they weren't fully awake. So. Pay attention to the clinical indicators in the medical record as to what they're saying, why the patient is, is intubated and kept on the vent, and then validate it. And then that should lead you to uh, the correct pathway. Awesome. Appreciate that, Don. You got through all three questions as well. I did. Without me. That was good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, without you. Surprise. I'll just read a couple of the um, other answers, uh, other uh, responses that came in, some really interesting ones. We, we did ask people, of course, what their biggest issue was with, um, with COVID-19. So some of them included um, getting further specification of the sequela versus uh, active infection without a query, um, COVID vaccine adverse effect versus complication, you know, they give an example, flash pulmonary edema after getting vaccine, but not getting a query response yet. Mm -hmm. uh, clarification of sepsis due to COVID-19. Many are not saying sepsis, but meet sepsis-3 criteria. Some providers have discussed that, quote, there is no viral sepsis. This was pretty common. You know, uh, someone else wrote determining it, is it COVID or does it rise a level of sepsis? We got that quite a bit. Well, uh, let me just speak to the viral sepsis real quick. And, you know, sepsis is there's always got there always has to be some source of infection. I don't know of any literature in the CDI world, meaning our OCG, our coding guidelines and all that, um, coding clinic, that says that viruses can't be uh, the underlying infection for sepsis. It's either going to be viral or bacterial. And the provider's diagnostic statement is you have to go by that. You know, we don't diagnose as CDIs. So just 
try to talk more, have verbal conversations with your staff, your providers, and see if you got any direct facility policies on that, or maybe one is needed, I don't know. But these are the times when you have to have these conversations. And, and really, you're going in to investigate and go in with an open mind. You know, how are they viewing this? Why are they saying it that way? There's a lot of educational opportunities for that, for both parties, for CDI and the providers. And then sometimes you can come to a meeting of the mind. As far as the vaccination related uh, side effects that we're starting to see, go to that, uh, that third uh, quarter coding clinic for 2020 on page nine. That's going to address a lot of those scenarios with the vaccination side effects, as well as a ton of other types of scenarios like the readmissions, things like that, and what to do in those scenarios. So, and you can also go to the coding clinic advisor dot com because they're going to have more questions in that document um, that are not in that third quarter coding clinic so that'll help you out a lot that'll that'll take you a long way in my opinion yeah great stuff just one last comment someone wrote biggest issue the documentation has really dropped off i could tell how busy and stressed they are yeah. when i am reading the charts i think they're so busy that the notes are really lacking the details we need so yeah and that's that's a you know what do you do about that i mean it, it it's reality so you know i encourage facilities to make their own policies regarding some of these scenarios as far as the documentation when to query how often do we query you know or we try you know we always try not to bombard a physician with multiple queries in a non-pandemic so you know we definitely want to keep that in mind and that is the difficult part the problem is is that we are just now looking at data from the past year so when you're in the pandemic as it's occurring you need accurate data and you need accurate coding the CDC did a huge study of over a hundred thousand patients and it was a pretty extensive thing and they looked at chronic conditions what are the commonalities what, what makes a patient high risk for severe COVID and all these different scenarios and they did it off of coded data which means the final bill that drops on these patients with those ICD-10 codes if they're not right then our data is going to be skewed for the research that we need providers and CDI and coding alike going forward so we're kind of in a catch-22 and we're gonna have to you know kind of weigh which thing gets dropped off but it can't be the specifics of the readmission manifestations and what's going on with that COVID in the active manifestations for the active COVID cases we've got to capture those so put our heads together, find some solutions to help these docs. Awesome job, Don. appreciate it. Let's take a look at our poll question. We asked folks, um, what are your biggest issues capturing COVID-19, either documentation and or coding related? Um, so our overwhelming response, 56% said post-COVID syndrome, patients readmitted with uh, additional symptoms or lingering effects. I just happened to see that this was on MSNBC last night, so I know it was true. But it, it, it really, it's it's a real thing. We're seeing that now. 25% uh, said query, getting queries answered from busy overwhelmed providers. We heard a little bit about that just in some of the comments that came in. 18% uh, said getting a lab positive lab test documented was their biggest issue. 19% said no real issues. And then 7% were other, we did get a number of other responses, which we'll continue to look at after the show. But any surprises here for you, Don? 
Not at all. Uh, like I said, the majority of the questions that I'm getting from my peers in the industry as well as here has been the readmissions and then the whole problem with the providers just being in the weeds. I mean, they're just getting hammered and they don't have time to accurately document. Um, so those are the two main issues that we are dealing with right now in the country, really, uh, with this pandemic. Right. All right, let's let's do a quick in the news segment. I know we're getting close to end time here, but I had an interesting story I wanted to share with you all. Um, this particular piece is from Kaiser Health News on the shift from volume to value, and it's really a, a familiar pain point for CDI specialists. Uh, the article you should, should be seeing on your screen reads, Medicare cuts payment to 774 hospitals over patient complications. So if we scroll down here, this is a, a pretty well done piece. Um, probably maybe a little slanted in the in the coverage from who they're speaking with, which are hospitals that have been penalized. Um, but just to cover it quickly, and actually as I as I'm hovering over here, this I thought this was interesting. There is a lookup tool. You can actually look up the hospitals that were hit with safety penalties for 2021, as well as some data and. Um, some links to prior articles on this topic from so a nice job covering this by Kaiser Health News but essentially a federal government has penalized 774 hospitals the article states for having the highest rates of patient infections or other potentially avoidable medical complications these hospitals which include some of the nation's marquee medical centers will, will lose one to two percent of their Medicare Medicare payments over 12 months so these penalties are based on patients who were stayed in these hospitals anytime between mid-2017 and 2019. So obviously pre-pandemic here, they were levied, uh, these penalties were levied under a program created by the Affordable Care Act, which uses the threat of losing Medicare money to motivate hospitals to protect patients from harm. Um, it's of course the Hospital Acquired Condition Reduction Program or Hack Reduction Program um this is where it does get into some they reached out to some hospital administrators who had been hit by this uh, as well as some an industry analysts to talk about the the fairness of the program in general so without getting too much into it i'm sure you guys are all aware of this to some degree but uh this you know the, the program assesses the rate of certain infections Don, you spelled out many of these for me helpfully dvts for example of certain procedures post-op sepsis cases not present on admission Phase three or four pressure ulcers, again, not POA, multiple types of fractures and other complications that could occur in the hospitals and falls and the like and could have been prevented. And that penalty amount is based on the quality measure involved and the quality performance recorded in the documentation and they're then deducted from the base payments rates. So um, as I was alluding to earlier, there, there, there are some complaints about the fairness of this program. Um, you know, there's an uh, Aiken Demihan, sorry for the pronunciation, I got that wrong, but he's the director of policy at the AHA, that the penalties were a game of chance, his quote, based on badly flawed measures. Um, the all or none penalty is unlike any other in Medicare's programs, said Dr. Kyle Billamora, vice president of quality at Northwestern Medicine, whose flagship Northwestern Hospital in Chicago was penalized this year. 
um, it, it is interesting in that, you know, even if you improve, but you over the prior year, but you're still in that penalty uh, window, um, you're still going to suffer a financial penalty from the hack program. So again, there were 774 hospital uh, penalized. There were 2,430 not penalized because their patient complication rates were not in, in that top quarter. And then there were a little over 2,000 hospitals excluded. These are ones that sold, you know, serve children, veterans, psych patients, or critical access. So interesting, and you can go in here in this article, as we always do, I will share the, the links to the article in the show notes. So if you want to check out which hospitals are penalized and more about this article, it's pretty in-depth. Uh, I do recommend taking a look at it to get a holistic picture of what's going on with the hack reduction program. But uh, curious, Dawn, do you have any, any comments or thoughts on this particular article? Well, I've seen this article, and, you know, my first thought is the obvious. You know, we, we I cannot change CMS, so that's going to have to play itself out. But what I do know from my personal experience as a CDI and a CDI manager and educator and all that is that a lot of CDIs struggle with complications and identifying them in the record, and providers also struggle with knowing the appropriate way to document complications. Um, so I think what we can do for facilities in light of these penalties being assessed is really focus on identifying those query opportunities. You know, we got to know what the PSIs are. We got to know what the hacks are and, and all of that. And then the second step is to really, you know, look at that documentation carefully and closely and pull those out and send those clarifications and then do a lot of education with the CDIs, the coders, and the providers all alike and get everybody in the same room to talk about it and then come up with some solutions for any holes that, you know, you may find in your, in your process. Right. Well, thanks, Dawn. You're welcome. Just, just a brief Actus update. Um, we're, we're past time here, but just wanted to point people to this interesting and, and fun and uh, but thought-provoking article from our lead CDI educator, Laurie Prescott, uh, about Grow the Profession. This is available on actus.org. It was the lead note, one of our recent CDI strategies, just about the importance of mentoring and growing the profession through being a positive spokesman for CDI. I think we all love this profession at least tolerate it, but we're all involved in it. <laughs> and um, some good advice here from Laurie about how to grow the profession just by being an advocate. So recommend checking that out. We will link to that certainly in the show notes. So again, I want to thank everyone for joining us today for the podcast. Appreciate, uh, apologize for my slight technical difficulties, but I do appreciate Don picking up for me mid-show and steering us towards the finish here. Uh, we are going to be back here again in two weeks with our next show on Wednesday, March 17th. Don't want to miss this one. We're having a registered respiratory therapist from our membership to talk about his journey into CDI and some of what his job involves in his uh, his current role. Interesting and a, and, a, and a good guy. So we'll see you back here again in two weeks on the 17th. Uh, again, for folks who listened, thank you for joining. The show was based on your actual questions, so keep those coming. That we, we will be hopefully doing more of these shows, uh, listener mailbag shows, 
thinking maybe quarterly, Don, if we can fit those in. So um, we'll see where the future heads, but keep those questions coming. And for everyone else, we'll see you back here again in two weeks. Take care, everyone.